Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Alex Gruskin. We will break down in depth all four men's quarterfinals at Roland Garros 2023. We'll go from the top of the draw to the bottom of the draw. I would like to start before we get to Gruskin with just some comments on the conditions because I have obtained some statistics, some numbers that I think will shed some light on what the conditions truly are like because there is a lot of chatter that you hear in you know press from the players talking about the balls fluffing up or sometimes it's on the match court itself when, I don't know, I was doing a match recently and both players were complaining that they that the court was being watered. Kokonakis and Hachinov were saying, why are you watering the courts? It's so slow. And now it's just going to get slower. This is ridiculous. Don't water them. The tennis balls have not been popular. So all this said, that's all noise. That's all hearsay. I want to take a look at what the court speed really is through the lens of hold percentage. When you have a higher hold percentage, it almost always means the courts are playing faster because the players are getting more damage from their serve, the biggest shot in all of tennis. If hold percentages uh, are lower, it usually means the court is slower because the serves are not as effective because they're losing more speed when they hit the court. I mean, there's other factors, altitude, wind, all that. But here are what the data is saying. This is what the data is saying. The number at the top uh, is 74%. That is the hold percentage at this year's Roland Garros through 101 matches. Now, this is kind of old at this point. There have been a few more matches played, but uh, that is obviously the majority of singles matches that are going to be played at RG. They're over and done with, and the men have been holding at 74%. The ATP average is 77.6%. Now the numbers in descending order. Uh, all the clay court numbers in descending order. Madrid is 82.5%. Rome is 76.7%. The clay average, the ATP clay average is 75%. I think that's for this season. Roland Garros last year is 75%. Again, Roland Garros this year is 74%. And Monte Carlo is 73.4%. Objective confirmation that it is indeed playing slower this year. And it is indeed playing slower than what a sopping wet Rome played like for an entire week. I mean, the courts were soaking wet the entire time, yet this is still less server-friendly. And reading between the lines slower, which is not what we expected. In fact, there were plenty of comments that were like, hey, you know, Roland Garros preview, like it's going to be much, much faster than Rome because it's going to be dry and sunny and Rome was wet. Not the case. And by the way, I also thought it would be faster than Rome. That has not been the case. So what else I did was I went through everyone who was still in the field as of last night. Some of these players are no longer in the field. I'll include them anyway, because you might find it interesting. 
But this was Sunday night. I sat down and I had to think and I said, who does this help? Who does this hurt? And then for some players, most players actually, there are pros and cons. All right, let's start with who it helps. Tsitsipas. I'm never worried about his finishing. This gives him maximum time on the backhand, and it's also optimal for running around his forehand. Alcaraz, pretty simple. Extra time on the forehand is a massive deal, and I also think it helps him to get more returns in play because he's such a good baseliner. Sarundalo, his serve weakness is smoothed over by these conditions. He gets more runaround time on the forehand, which is massive. Kasper Ruud. The forehand can hit through any conditions. He's less likely to get hit or served off the court by aggressive power players. And that has certainly been the case. So that is my list of players who I feel like this has helped. Obviously, Sarundalo was eliminated, but Tsitsipas, Alcaraz, Rude. Who does it hurt? Nicholas Jari. Needs to beat Rude with his serve and likely can't. That's what I wrote last night. Djokovic. He can win the title. But let's not pretend like he has not been dominating with his serve plus one effectiveness in quick conditions throughout recent years. Dominating. Can't really do that on this surface. Has to win in other ways. Zverev. His best clay has been Madrid for a reason. His first serve gets hurt by these conditions and his forehand can become more important. And in my opinion, the more important the forehand is for Zverev, the worse. Maybe people will have arguments about that. In fact, I don't think Alex Groskin agrees because I think he, and I didn't argue with him in, at the time, but uh, he made a comment that made me believe that he actually thinks these slow conditions help Zverev. But for me, at least last night, and I still believe this, I think it hurts. Everyone else, I see pros and cons. Most players have trade-offs in their game. Runa, elite defender on slow clay, but hasn't mastered the high margin forehand aggression that's so crucial and things get more physical. Dimitrov, he can use his athleticism and kind of bother with court coverage, but his forehand is a little bit flat. That's where I stopped. I don't know if there are players that I didn't list, but that is, uh, that's where I stopped. And that's my rundown. All right. So hope that was insightful. Without further ado, let us get to the quarterfinal preview with Alex Gruskin. We are joined once again by Alex Gruskin, editor-in-chief at Cracked Rackets, host of the Mini Break, host of the Great Shop podcast, Cracked Interviews. Texted me. I asked him to come on. He proceeded to ask me what he should do with his facial hair prior to coming <laughs> on. He's gone clean shaven. Do you want to, I mean, clearly this is an important thing to you. So do you want to talk about your decision just before we get into the Australian Open quarterfinals? Well, I have two announcements, I guess, then. One pertaining to the facial hair, one other personal slash professional that I think Monday Match Analysis listeners will want to hear. The facial hair was because I was in hibernation. I left Orlando like 14 days ago and just was done shaving for two weeks. I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want anyone to see me. And so I had enough facial hair to where there could have been a goatee today. That's really why I wanted to present the choice to you because I didn't want to offend your fans. I know they're fascinated by our eyebrows. Would the goatee take away from the eyebrows? That was a serious pre-production question I had for Gil. I went cleanly shaven because 
I mean, look at this jawline. I'm looking good right now for what it's worth. Helps to have been sick for the past week, I suppose. But yeah, I went cleanly shaven. That's announcement one. Announcement two. And I think you knew this was coming. I think a lot of fans knew this was coming. But just to confirm, I am also leaving Action News now. This will be my last week in Chico. I'm done on Thursday. I just it, it was a package deal. It was me and Jenna or no one. So just to confirm to Monday Match Analysis fans out there, I will also be leaving. And I appreciate all of the Northern California sporting fans who put up with my nonsense. Oh, my God. These inside jokes. <laughs> Nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh well, probably for the best. And by the way, I said Australian Open in the intro. Uh, I hope nobody clicked off the podcast thinking that <laughs> they're, they were listening to the wrong thing. Uh, but yeah, this is Roland Garros. All right, let's start at the top of the draw. We're going to go down the list. It's Tsitsipas and Alcaraz. The seeds hold. Neither of them really get into any trouble. Uh, smooth sailing through the draw uh, for, for both of them. We know kind of the head-to-head. -head. I guess... The Alcaraz Tsitsipas thing is one of the most like public, common knowledge, 4-0 head-to-heads out there. I just think because Alcaraz's big first big win was against Tsitsipas, and then he backed it up a couple of times when he was on his rise, you know, early on Indian Wells uh, last year. It's been a thing. Do you know what I've noticed about this head-to-head -head, though? Every time they play, Steph gets further away from winning. To the point where, like, their last match in Barcelona, I know the scoreline isn't so bad, but it felt very routine. And that wasn't the case the first couple times they played. You know, Tsitsipas took some some sets. So I'm coming into this, and I'm like, the head-to-head's going in the wrong direction for Tsitsipas. Just because you'll see it in the comment section, Miami, not Indian Wells, in that Alcaraz-Tsitsipas battle. But I completely agree with your assessment. And I think why tennis fans are so nonchalant towards this matchup is because it's very similar to what we saw. And I draw it to the early stages of Nadal Federer, where it's just the way Nadal was able to exploit Federer heavy topspin to the backhand was so evident to any tennis fan, just a casual observation. You're like, Oh, it keeps going to the ad side corner. This isn't working well for Roger. That's exactly what Alcaraz does. It's the exact same execution, albeit from a righty, albeit from an inside out forehand instead of a cross court traditional, I suppose, forehand. But it's the exact same dynamic unfolding. And it just feels like this matchup is solved until you see some sort of dramatic adjustment from Stefano Tsitsipas. Now, there are two sides of this equation, in my opinion. And I want to start with the Alcaraz side of things. I have presented this take perhaps even to you before, if not on air, certainly off it. I don't think there's a single more dangerous thing in all of tennis right now. Like I almost swore I'm not going to, I've matured. That's what time in college has taught me is leave the swearing aside. <laughs> um, shout out West Virginia. Um, I just think when Alcaraz has time on the ad side of the court, if you're his opponent, you have lost that point. Because he can go inside out with his forehand. He can go inside in with his forehand. He can go down the line with his backhand. He can go drop shot legitimately from any of those positions as well. Excuse me, wings. I just think that singular weapon is built to beat Stefano Tsitsipas. And so that would be part one of my equation is it's just it feels like we know what to expect in this matchup. Yeah, so I agree. 
the TT Pass backhand has been exploited in two ways against Alcaraz. First, it's the pure pace absorption, weight of shot absorption. I, I think that's what you're referring to with the massively heavy qualities of Alcaraz's inside out forehand, or in some cases, his forehand down the line. And then the second part of that is when TT Pass hits his cross court backhand trade. So I, I guess there's some defensive stuff too here, but let's just say when when it's in neutral and he hits his cross court backhand trade, is it actually good enough to remain unattackable, or is Alcaraz stepping around that ball? Is it landing too short? Is it too slow? And Alcaraz is either you know stepping into his back to a backhand, which is dangerous in itself, or even worse, as you said, hitting forehands from the ad side of the court. Yeah, well. I think it, it's both things in the sense that you're right. Just the singular effect of the Alcaraz weapon, it overwhelms Stefano Tsitsipas. But it's also, what does it take away from Tsitsipas? Tsitsipas wants to be cheating over on that ad side of the court, right? And you just can't do that against Carlos Alcaraz because the moment you cheat, he'll just beat you down the line instead, or he'll throw in the drop shot instead with your momentum going the opposite direction. You talk about that cross-court backhand exchange. Topspin is one thing, but the slice is just not an option against Carlos Alcaraz cross-court because if you hit that cross-court slice, now he's inside out on that forehand wing, and I already went through the menu of options. It reminds me of the 17-18 Warriors where it's just like, all right, are you going to cheat on the pick and roll? You do that. Draymond's rolling to the rim. It's a four-on-three. I got Clay. I got KD, or I got a crashing Andre Iguodala. It's just like... You are so screwed if you give Carlos Alcaraz time. And so the thing I keep coming back to, to go full circle here, is just, see, this is part two. Is Tsitsipas capable of having one of those days on serve with his forehand where he's just too good? And I don't know that the answer to that question is definitively no. And that's why I think this match is kind of intriguing. All right, a couple things I want to respond. First of all, it doesn't matter. Even if your slice is good, I don't think you can slice against Alcaraz on clay. I think he's at the, he, it's the Nadal thing. And this was also yes. part of the Federer-Nadal matchup. You can't slice against Nadal on clay. You're going to die. Uh, that was another issue for Federer. He had to learn that. And eventually he did. And things got a little bit better for him. Uh, so yeah, I agree with that. One more thing I'll add is Alcaraz can even attack Tsitsipas's back in with his net rushing. Like we've even seen in this matchup, oh, second serve, haven't done this yet. Let's kick serve and volley to the backhand. So there's just so many different things he's doing. And that is why Tsitsipas' backhand is plenty good enough to win a ton of matches, but then this is a different animal in itself. I think what the helpless thing is for Tsitsipas is, at least for me, I haven't thought of an adjustment, which yes. is a word that you used earlier. I haven't thought of a good adjustment. I think what, what it needs to be is improvement. He just needs to... And I, honestly, I don't know if he can have a good enough serve and forehand day for it to be enough. I actually think he needs to protect the backhand really, really well. I, I think that is what's required, especially when it comes to trying to break serve because you can, Tsitsipas at his best, yeah, he's hitting first serves and forehands and volleys and you're lucky if you get it to his backhand. But in order to break serve, Tsitsipas is going to need to hit backhands. Well, let's just stop beating around the bush to go full circle. It's a terrible matchup for Stefano Tsitsipas. Like, I often get accused of being anti Tsitsipas and anti one-handed backhand in general. And I'm not going to fight those accusations because there's a lot of tr there's a lot of tape to make a strong evidence for it. The problem is, as you pointed out, 
So what's the adjustment Tsitsipas makes? And to Tsitsipas's credit, he is top 25 in break percentage this season. He has taken another step forward on clay courts in particular. The adjustment, that's the word of the day here on Monday Match Analysis. The A stands for adjustment. His adjustment is to take a few steps back, to give himself a little bit more time to swing through that backhand more cleanly. You brought up the point, though, perfectly. All right, Carlos Alcaraz will serve and volley. And he'll take that time away from you. And it's just like, so that adjustment's not going to work. Again, you can't cheat against Alcaraz. You talk about he needs to hit more forehands. Well, if he tries to do that in the amidst the baseline rally, now all of a sudden Alcaraz goes line. Now all of a sudden Alcaraz goes drop shot. And it's just that unpredictable nature of Carlos Alcaraz. It gets back to, and I guess this is, again, full circle here for Tsitsipas, he is serving lights out. Like his serve and his plus one forehand might be the single most reliable combination we have right now in terms of one, two punches on the ATP tour. Can he execute that well enough? And then I know this is crazy, but I think he's got to go after the beast, Gil. And I'm curious your thoughts on this. Forehand to forehand. He's just got to beat him. Like he just has to be better. Tsitsipas does than Alcaraz tomorrow, or I think the match is on Tuesday. Um, that would be my first perception is just say, hey, we're I'm I'm laying it down on the table. Sorry for the graphic motion there, but it's like this is what I have, this is what I bring to the court. Is it good enough to get the job done? Yeah, I think he definitely needs to win forehand to forehand. He needs to have a better forehand day. Again. I, I think there's a lot of, I agree with you, Tsitsipas is serving unbelievably well. I think he has throughout clay court season. All of this stuff obviously is going to help him hold. I'm just a lot less confident in his ability to break serve uh, consistently against Alcaraz. And I don't know that it's possible to just like take Carlitos to tie breaks, you know, to be that serve centric on this surface, especially. Um, a couple things. One, I, I want to mention Alcaraz is much more battle tested. I want to throw that out there. I mean, Shapovalov, f- full transparency. I, I did think he was going to lose to Nakashima in the first round. So it's not like I was high on Shapovalov. But once he got to the third round, I said, okay, that's a little bit uncomfortable. That's certainly more uncomfortable than if it would be Nakashima, even though I thought Brandon was going to get the better of that first round matchup. Shapo's way more uncomfortable than that. And then Musetti who's playing really, really well. And it's a 6-3, 6 uh, has gotten Carbias Baena, Schwartzman, and Sebastian Offner. So, I mean, fair to say that's another thing in Alcaraz's corner where it's like, wow, he's actually been tested already and he's just breezing through some of these tougher opponents. Yes and no. Yes, Alcaraz is more calloused up. Now, both of them played so many clay court matches. And like to Tsitsipas' credit, he had a good clay court season, right? I mean, quarters Monte Carlo, finals Barcelona, quarters Madrid, semis Rome, surface level. And we don't have to break down all the matches individually, but that's a good clay court season. And now you follow it up with quarterfinals Roland Garros. He's one of the 10 best guys on clay, and he's seen a little bit of everyone throughout the course of this clay court season. That's a very safe statement you just made. Well, top 10? The, well, Everybody knows that. All right, I'll say one of the five. He's one of my top five contenders coming into this. Go. Like I there felt, okay, like I said, <laughs> some have justifiably accused me of being anti-one-handed backhand, <laughs> and so I'm going to be a little safe there with my CT Pass assessment. I think you threw out a, a 
the Yuri Vesely erasement, it's your typical 1993 through five erasure. And that's obviously the blind spot routinely ah. here on Monday match analysis. Uh, that first round match, big lefty with a big serve for seat spots to win that match, especially he was down a set point in that fourth set breaker. And he avoided going to the decider. He was down in early break against Ofner in the first in round four. He gets through that, that match in straight sets and progressively got better. I love the way he covers his forehand when he stretched on the deuce side. Like, this is so stupid. But it, we're going to do a quad assessment here. The strength of his quads as he slides into his forehand cross on that deuce side. You're just like that. That's what it's supposed to look like. I'd be like, cut the tape. Um, Best I, in the world at that. Running so forehand. To, yeah. to that, I say, oh, Roberto Bautista Gu on hard courts would like a cup of coffee in that conversation. Um, he baits you into doing it. We don't have to debate on the run forehands. We do have to debate. No, I don't think the callousness matters. I think this is the matchup CT Pass wants most. And just a quick tidbit, because you'll talk, I'm sure, semifinal preview at some point. I, I know how... I know your scheduler and your scheduler doesn't invite back to back. So I don't imagine I'm going to be on the <laughs> next show. Um, anyways, like the thing that ha- this is my last Tsitsipas point, then I swear I'll shut up. The thing Tsitsipas has in his favor, he got to play Alcaraz this year. Like the thing that makes the Djokovic Alcaraz semifinal so anticipated is that we haven't gotten to see it yet this year. At least for Tsitsipas, he knows the challenge. He saw the challenge, and it just comes down to, again, is he going to execute well on serve to get to five alls, to get to six alls, to make it a gut check sort of moment? He's fit enough to do it. It's just the worst matchup possible, and so I, I that would be why you just have to lean Alcaraz. Okay. First of all, thanks for calling me out on the Vesely erasure because <laughs> like 7, 1 a.m. wake up. Actually, that's generous. 7 uh, 12, 15 a.m. wake-up calls later, I totally forgot that match happened. What? That was Sunday. Uh, yeah. So that feels like three years ago. NCAAs were still happening, so yeah. it was a lifetime ago. There you go. But yeah, you're right. That was that was a tricky one. Look, Vesely on clay, Titi Pass, you better not lose that match. Uh, but yes, big, big serving lefty. I'm with you on that. That can be difficult. Okay, let's just end on this then, and then we'll wrap this up, um, this matchup. Mentally, where is he at? Because I'm not so sure anymore. Like Tsitsipas was the youngest guy in the history of tennis to have a win over each of the big three. I think he did it before he was 21 years old. He had a win over Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. He was a breath of fresh air for a lot of people when he first came up because it was clear when he played these big guns, he actually was uh, completely unafraid and had no respect and came out uh, like expecting a win with uh, an arrogance and a swagger about him. Does he still have that in a matchup against Alcaraz where he's 0-4 and he hasn't won? Because I'm, I actually think he's a little different mentally than he was when he was super, super young, which is, look, it's understandable. Like a lot has happened here. He's, you know, many, many years on tour later. I don't know that he still like has that expectation for himself that he's gonna be a world beater And, you know, I just, what's your sense on that? Well, the key point is he's no longer chasing. He's getting chased. Or in the case of Alcaraz, there's this young kid who has already caught up to him. And now, to your framing, 
maybe he can think of this match as, hey, I'm the underdog. And I, I do think he will think of himself as such. And I think you go out and swing. And that's when CT Pass is be- at his best. And that is, despite all of the matchup disadvantages, what you hold on to in this match. You nailed it perfectly. Is we have seen CT Pass come out mentally to the point where he is so loose. What was it? The who did he beat in that Australian Open run on his way to his first semi? Was it Fed or was it Nadal? Who who did he beat uh, on his way to get there? He's defeated both at the Australian yeah. Open. So to it was that, Fed. It was the first yeah, one. I think was it, fed. the first one yeah. was Fed, if my memory serves correct as well. If if you get that Tsitsipas, who's just swinging, who says, yeah, your forehand and serve are good, so are mine, that man can get you to breakers. That man was up two sets to love on Djokovic in a Roland Garros final, regardless of how Novak was playing. He did the hard part. He made it to the quarterfinals. He gets the shot at the big dog now. Again, you have to lean Alcaraz because the matchup is terrible. For Stefano Tsitsipas. But yeah, I do think mentally he's going to come out loose. I think that's what's going to make this match fun. I think it'll be loose. I just don't know that he still believes he's going to win this match when he steps onto the court. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I also go Alcaraz. Let's go to Djokovic. Can I give you one Alcaraz stat quickly? Because it's just amazing. Yeah. 107 matches since the start of last year. What's his record? Has he won 90, 90, uh, Three of them? That's really well done. 91 and 16. He turned 20 a month ago. 91 and 16 (laughs) over the course of 17 months. Like, not eliminated from the GOAT discussion. Put the stamp on it. We can move on. All right. Djokovic, Hatchinov. Eight to one head-to-head. Biggest win of Karen's career. Came against Novak, 2018. Paris still hasn't won a title since. But what he has done is killer consistency at the majors. This is his third straight uh, quarterfinal at a slam. Last two have been semifinals. He's been, uh, he's played seven Roland Garros main draws. He's made the fourth round in six of them. I want to give you the floor to start on this. Like, are you, uh, Okay, should we start here? Does Hachinov have a better chance against Novak than Tsitsipas has against Alcaraz? Let's just start there. Wow. That's a great question. And you saw the smile on my face because this is a guy we have spent many hours pontificating upon both on and off mic. And I, coming into this year, it was a make-or-break year for Hachinov. If he wanted to break the perception that, yeah, he's a top 25 guy, but he's not a top 10 guy, He needed to build upon what was, again, a really encouraging semifinal run at the U.S. Open last year. I'm going to say yes. Hatchinov has a better chance of beating Djokovic than Alcaraz does, of uh, Tsitsipas does of beating Alcaraz, because structurally, I just don't know what the adjustment is for Stefano Tsitsipas to take anything away from Carlos Alcaraz. He's just going to have to do his best to play his best. Hatchinov is finally turning into the player uh, uh, in person that on paper 
he has always ascribed to be like you see the overwhelming first serve the overwhelming weapon and you look you know at tennis abstract stats leaderboard took me like 20 minutes to get there shout out to me for the discipline but you look at the stats leaderboard here in 2023 just the hold percentage for karen hatchinov i mean this is a guy who's holding serve at a top 15 top 10 rate now through five consistent months eight consistent months if you want to go all the way back to the u.s open and just that ability to Win free points with your first serve, whether it be via the serve outright or the serve plus one combination. Hatchinov has had that available to him now seven months consistently. You talked about his consistency at the slams. Yes, three straight quarterfinals, but I think this is a guy who's made the fourth round of the French Open in something like six of the last eight years or five of the last seven, something crazy like that. Red card. Uh, Am I wrong? No. You're right, but I already said the stat, and it's six of seven. Oh, six of it split the difference even better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll give you the benefit even of the doubt. That, you were, you were just, clearly you were pulling up the stats leaderboard when I said that. It's all right. Yeah, exactly. I needed to double check some earlier things so I didn't get a second red card because one, you're you know again in trouble. Two, you're suspended. Um, yeah, I I just he's really physical, like. God, he has that yep. ability to make this match three hours, three and a half, four hours. Problem is, as good as he's been throughout this run, it's Novak. You know, it, it's guys like Novak, Alcaraz, Medvedev, who he still hasn't been able to beat. He's beaten everyone who, for years, we've said he should beat, and that's been a ma- massive development. It's why he's 10 in the live rankings. Can he do it consistently enough to beat this version of Novak? Look, I don't host three a tennis show. Where are you with how Novak's playing? Because is is Novak fit enough for this battle? I mean, he hasn't really been tested so far. But he has against Foki. Like Okay. That's and it was true. it was straight sets, but that's the thing. So before the tournament, I did pre I did predict Hatchinov to the quarters. I liked him over Rublev. And I was thinking about that matchup a bit and you're right to kind of first go to the physicality. It's like Hachinov is not going to beat himself. He's going to be so consistent backhand to backhand. And traditionally, the players that can actually trade with Djokovic uh, with some of the same quality and consistency backhand to backhand can actually give him some problems, Medvedev and Zverev in particular. And Hachinov can do that and super durable, very physical. So if Novak doesn't have the offensive stuff firing, can this just turn into kind of a war of attrition? And if it can, well, I was in a position before the tournament. I haven't really seen Novak's fitness. And by the way, did we see it in the Australian Open? Did anybody push him hard enough for fitness to even come into the question? Am I forgetting any of those matches? Because I, I recall that all being uh, pretty breezy for Djokovic in Melbourne. Yeah, but oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the the Fokina match where I said the stats um, on, on one of my videos. I don't have those notes in front of me, but the rallies were obscenely long. They, you know, we're talking about the one of the best court coverage guys in tennis who committed to making a lot of balls, slow conditions, wind. It doesn't get much more physical than that. Novak held up so well in that match that that answers the fitness question. Like, I'm done with the fitness question. He he gets a, a green check mark, And that's why I no longer really see Hatchinov's path to victory here. Yeah. 
Look, by the way, here's a fun thing for MMA viewers to observe. Gil, what's the most I, I've trained him well. What's the most <laughs> notable thing about Juan Pablo Varias? He uh, has your birthday. A, to the exact day. Shout out the 10695 crew. Djokovic was not tested in that round of 16 match. I will say, though, he was locked in. There were none of those, you know, uh, I'll get broken here just so I can kind of work my way into this match or whatever it may be. He was hitting his forehand cross so effectively. The ball he's going to have to hit when stretched on, you know, on the run, full stretch, the ball that's deep enough with enough pace and enough action that there's just not an easy play for his opponent from there. And that's the ball you have to hit against Hatchinov because if you give him forehands to sit on when he has a little bit more time to load on that big backswing, now he's taking massive cuts. Now he hits that ball so heavy that you're chasing for three, four hours, and it starts to wear on you. I do think, to your point about the Davidovich-Fokina match, that was the pass, fitness-wise, where you saw Djokovic say, no, I'm fine. I'm totally good to play (laughs) these deep sets, 6-all, 5-all, whatever it may be. The one thing we haven't seen on Novak at all is any scoreboard pressure. I mean, he hasn't dropped a set so far in this event. It's not the same as the Australian Open because I think all the guys are playing better now. Like, obviously, Medvedev got eliminated here, and I suppose that sucks from a no disrespect to Echeverry, but just that would have been another guy. But, like, Runa is playing very well. Tsitsipas is playing very well. Hatchinov is playing well and has been doing this now for six months consistently to where you say it's not a fluke. His level is real. Obviously, the thing that matters more than anything in Australia is Carlos Alcaraz is in the freaking draw. In a way, he wasn't in Melbourne. I do want to see Djokovic get get pushed three hours, four hours, and more importantly, see how he recovers the next day because that's the bigger question to me than can he do it once. It's can he do it two more times, three more times from here. But I do agree with you. Structurally, Djokovic is playing well enough and he doesn't have that vulnerability for Hatchinov to attack that I just – Novak Djokovic is better at everything than Karen Hatchinov. Right. I mean, there's wear and tear stuff. Like, there's medical, there have been medical timeouts. There's the elbow thing lingering that seems to be solved. But I guess you just never know with something like that. He's, he's wearing his magnet on his chest, Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's some stuff with that. But ultimately, but like, cardio-wise... It's how he's hitting the ball, though. Like, I, it reminds me of 2021 Novak, the 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 cross court forehands in particular, where he's hitting it in, you know, he's sliding into the shot, not sliding out of it, and he's hitting it with such vigor and just such depth. And it just reminds me that he's locked in for the greater battle, which is Carlos Alcaraz this year, in the same way he was locked in in 2021 for the greater battle, which was Rafa. And I think that's the thing where I just he has passed those sorts of superficial check marks, even if he hasn't played a traditional four hour match. I think for the offense and for the forehand in particular, I think this is the the check mark match okay. uh, because I think where Hatchinov has honestly struggled against Novak is defending against his aggression. the The first serve percentages have been sky high. Hatchinov just doesn't really have the the court coverage. The thing about his movement, he is actually as willing to run and as fit as Zverev and Medvedev, who get all of this praise for, wow, you're six foot six and, and you move like a six foot one guy. Amazing. Hatchinov doesn't get put in that. 
in some ways he deserves to be put in that because we take for granted how much he's willing to run and we shouldn't take that for granted where he's not them is the court coverage and even when he gets to balls i think that the defensive racket skills can sometimes lack where you can force errors against him when you stretch him out both on the forehand and the backhand especially you know with how easily he'll go to slice defense uh, on the forehand i think this is the match where djokovic gets ultra offensive and when i really look at this head-to-head I love Karen from neutral. I don't like him nearly as much in the extremes of the game. How well can you finish and how well can you scramble? And that's where I feel like Novak is head and shoulders above. Yeah. The thing is, Hatchinov is good, not great out of his corners. Like That's what it comes down to is for a guy his size. This we, I think we've said this before. Hatchinov's great for a guy his size. Doesn't mean he's good. Or it doesn't mean he's elite out of those corners. And I do think the problem is Novak Djokovic pushes you into the corners in a way where you got to be elite moving in and out of them. Mm-hmm. And you're right. When Hatchinov gets a clean rip on that forehand, he's going to get Novak stretched. He's going to have some surface games where, you know, he strings together two, three easy plus one winners in a row. And yeah. I think we're going to see some 6-4 sets. I think we could absolutely see Hatchinov push Novak to a breaker in a set. Hatchinov has played well enough and is swinging confidently enough that he's absolutely in a position to do it. Can he actually win this match? Can I see him taking three sets and sustaining a level of aggression consistent enough to where whatever adjustments Novak makes? he's And by the way, the drop shot is open for Novak Djokovic in this match because, again— Hatchinov is fluid for his side, not overwhelmingly fluid. There's just a lot of adjustments mm-hmm. for Novak to make, so I agree. I'd lean, I'd lean heavily his way, much like I would Alcaraz in the first quarterfinal. Yeah, uh, so I, I have that too. The Djokovic-Alcaraz semi, the matchup, I should say, finally happens. Um, I, I, I hope, I hope we see it. I do. Uh, anything else I want to add here? Not really. Let's go on. Uh, Runa versus Rude. This is a Roland Garros rematch from last year where you had some conflicting accounts of incidents in the locker room after the match was over. You had an icy handshake from Holger, uh, which Casper was not happy about. And then, uh, Holger went on to say, was it? Yeah, I think Holger himself said it. It wasn't his mother who said it, right? Uh, said that, that Casper shouted ja at him in the in the locker room anyway so that's the previous drama they've also played earlier this clay court season uh where runa got the better of casper uh what was the score there i think it was a six seven six four six two win for holger i haven't let's see that's what it was oh okay i thought you guessed it i was gonna no i'm not very intrigued i I would have been impressed by me too that was uh that was the semis of of rome Okay, let's start here. Runa just played this, you know, pretty epic match against Francisco Sorindolo. I did a post-match video about it. How did that shape the way you're looking at Holger right now, that match? Well, I think I have to go back to your introduction of the matchup itself because my favorite fact, looking at it and researching this match in preparation for tonight's show, and obviously our mini-break podcast will be doing as well, Holger Runa has played Kasper Ruud more times than he has faced any other opponent thus far in his career. It kind of is a rivalry between these two, certainly from the perspective of Holger Runa, 
early in his career. I mean, now with this sixth match, again, I think it's a two-match gap between Rude and anyone else. That matters coming into this one. Now, does his matchup against Sarundalo shape my perception at, or change my perception at do you all? Wanna, do you want to save that for – do you want to – we can start with your first point, that well, it's yeah, a rivalry. Yeah, let's start okay, there. Okay, let's start Please there. Go. Okay, first of all, uh, who's the king of Scandinavia? So there's a, a natural <laughs> a natural thing there before there was any incident. Anyway, I love that for Casper. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is some bad blood here, I don't think Runa ever needs that on the court. I think he's just highly – highly motivated and highly confident, has a lot of bravado, finds ways to dislike his opponents, you know, all the time. Casper Ruud is way too nice. Like we've seen him underperform against Rafa because he just likes Rafa. I love, I think it's an, it's an advantage for, for Casper in the sense that I think it helps him play his best that in his words, he won't be sending Holger Christmas cards. Am I off base? No, I, I think that's completely fair. And by the way, it was running around Twitter today, the clip of Nadal just elfing rude. I don't know how else to describe it in the tunnel prior to the start of the French Open match with the music from Breakpoint, the Netflix docuseries. That clip was going around. And that's the only clip from the series that like, I can text to my friends and make a joke about from there is who represents Rafa. Like we said, Rafa is our buddy Jack and Casper is jars of Jif peanut butter during MCAT studying season where it's just, sorry, you're going down today. Um yeah, that, if I'm Casper, that's what I'm doing in the hallway before the match. Like, absolutely, I'm exploiting that fact because you talked about their Rome semifinal. That was the first win for Holger over Casper in their career head-to-heads. And I do think to sort of move towards the tennis, as natural as Kasparu looks on clay, and it's very c- clear he's going to be very good on this surface for a very long time, I don't know if I've seen anyone make moving on this surface look as easy as a young Holger Runa does. He is just so fluid on the clay. He changes direction well. He slides into his shot. He's comfortable moving forward. Everything he does is accentuated by this surface or is just, again, it it's emphasized. It's improved. It's made better. You name the adjective. Holger... What's so amazing is how complete his game looks. Like you see guys on clay with the big serves, with the big forehands, when they have more time to wind up, it makes their life easy. That's not what makes Holger's life easy. He is just better. I don't know if this is a fair description, but sometimes clay makes you play bad tennis because if you're not comfortable moving on the surface, you're going to look like you're on ice skates. Mm -hmm. Holger Runa is capable of playing good tennis at a level on this surface that just very, very few others are capable of playing. And so, like, yes, was the match against Sarundula one of those days? Absolutely not. But Runa was just better. Like, he was better at winning tennis points, which is ultimately what this comes down to. He has more ways to win tennis points on this surface than almost anyone. Maybe even more ways than Alcaraz, even if the best ways aren't better. Okay, well, I agree with you that his defense is unbelievable. I mean, it was the main thing. I thought it was the main asset against Djokovic where Novak was hitting a lot of big forehands from the middle of the court. And, you know, this wet clay that Holger was flying around, he just couldn't get it through. But what the Sorendolo match did for me was confirmed 
my biggest concern, my my primary concern about Runa coming in. And I said this before in my preview, I'm literally confident in every single aspect of Holger Runa other than the endurance. We've yeah. seen the gas tank run out so many times. Now, to his credit, usually it's been in finals. And in some of these finals, he's ended up winning it, like in Munich. Uh, but Rome and Monte Carlo, like there have constantly been kind of this subpar physicality for Runa. And now here he is again, looking really tired by the end of the third set, having to completely throw away the fourth by keeping all the points as short as possible, uh, just not playing smart tennis. And and then in the fifth, you know, we saw a lot of point shortening stuff that was working against Sorindolo. Uh, He could pick his spots to dig in and get physical and decide to defend again. But like, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't willing to do that really until he was down love 40. And then as soon as he did it, he rattled off three straight points. There are positives and negatives to that, but maybe he's rope-a-doping me. I just feel like, okay, are you going to get away with that against Runa? It's exhausting to play Casper with his forehand. The way his forehand will control you and push you back, it will really take it out of your legs, just like Nadal's forehand took it out of your legs on this clay court surface. That heavy RPM stuff gets really exhausting because of how it pushes you back. Yeah, I guess a couple of things off of that. One, I agree the fitness continues to be an issue for Holgaruna. Here's the thing. It's 19, 20, or just turned 20 years old. Excuse me. Like, if the thing we're asking more... No, no, no. I agree it's an issue as it pertains to this 2023 event. I am saying now, big picture, if that's the thing we're asking about, you know, that's why I'm so encouraged because he is going to get stronger. Agreed. He is continuing, going to continue to get fit and everything he says in his post-match press conference. (laughs) I was thinking about this as you were talking because obviously I wasn't listening to you. Is he is Hogaruna the Ja Morant of the ATP? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But I'm saying from like a profile of player, like just just like know, again, explosiveness. Yeah, and just the you're just like, oh my God. Like the breathtaking ability to do a little bit of everything at times, and yet again, you still have some questions about him moving forward. Um look, I I don't know that I, I I agree with your assessment of Casper Ruud. And as you look at this match specifically, the weight of that Casper Ruud forehand, it just push particularly when he can dictate from that ad side. I've said it's a righty mortal version of Nadal with how he attacks you with his patterns inside out, inside out to set up the inside in. Here's the thing. Holgaruna has the backhand, as we saw at times in Rome, to take that away from Casper, mm-hmm. to take that ball on the rise, to take that ball down the line, to then open things up, whether it's an inside-out forehand, which I think is the one Holgaruna is more, com- most comfortable hitting, or just straight up backhand cross to backhand cross. Runa can beat Root on that end. Now, I think Casper Root is far more efficient in executing his plus-one tennis than Holgaruna is at this point of his game, but this is the first matchup we've talked about where there are clear tactical things each of these guys can do to exploit their opponent's weakness as well as minimize their strengths. And that is why this is not just ranking-wise, but tennis-wise, the most intriguing of the matchups in the quarterfinals. I picked Holger Runa to the semis at the Mm. start of the tournament. I didn't know... I guess if I'm going to make an excuse for myself, um, 
Why? He can still get there. You don't need an excuse. I'm changing it. I'm changing oh! it. Oh! <laughs> uh, look, I I was concerned about Rude's draw because I saw a bunch of power players. I actually thought it would be... Um, I thought it would be Stroof, but since it was Jari, I looked at the draw. I said, okay, if it's Jari, it's Jari. Same issue, who is also so you know good. a dark horse, right? Yeah, you had all of these power players, big serves, big power. And if you look at Casper's losses this year, those are the players that he's been losing to. Not only is Holger not that player, but also these conditions are way slower than I expected with the new balls. And it's completely changed your Jari and Struff and Karatsevs. Like the, those guys, their ability to, to play well is a little bit different here now. So I think Casper's speed and defense, uh, not that it's an edge over Holger because they're both just elite, uh, but I think Casper has been defending unbelievably well. I thought that was the big difference against Jari. He wasn't going to get served off the court in these conditions, even with the bombs being rained down by the Chilean. But ultimately, why I like Casper here, better fitness, better forehand. And just looking at who's succeeding thus far at Roland Garros and like the the things that I've been valuing here it's mostly it's those two things i've seen a lot of fitness issues because i think it's been exhausting to you know try to hit these fluffy slow tennis balls as hard as you can not to mention longer rallies and i think it's required a big forehand which is why everyone until echeverry who's played nishioka has collapsed in exhaustion which is why francisco sarandolo had been a killer on until until he ended up losing to uh, Runa. So I'm just seeing these things and I, I'm just going to, I really think the better fitness and the better forehand is going to come through here. It's a very fair point. And your, the biggest concern you have for Hoga Runa coming out of this Surrendolo match is the fact that he looked a little wary come sets four and five. And I think the first set is so much more important in this quarterfinal match for Hoga Runa than it is for Casper Root. It mm -hmm. is so important that Runa does get a bit of a lead because then Look, he's gotten so much better at dictating with his first forehand, at taking that backhand down the line and following it in, at just being aggressive as he had to do at times, even if it was in a sloppy fashion against Sarundalo down the home stretch today. That said, you're right. If you're down 7-6, 4-2, and that forehand just keeps going to the ad side over and over again, the complaints to the box are going to pick up for Hogaruna. You could just absolutely see a world where a tight first sets goes to Kasparud. Kasparud runs away with the match in straight sets. Absolutely. And that maybe is an indictment on where the young Dane still is in his career in those early stages where the recovery, both physically and mentally, hasn't always been there thus far. I mean, that said, look, I picked Holger to make the semis as well. Because he can do a little bit of everything uh, on these clay courts. And, I mean, Hogaruna has been spectacular, not just this year, but over the course of the past two years on clay courts. Since the start of last season, 37 and 14 overall on clay. Here's the more impressive thing. I mentioned Hatchinov, who's been really good these last six months. He's 5 and 8 against top 20 players. On clay courts since the start of last year, Hogaruna, 7 and 5 
overall against top 20 players. That includes wins over guys like Sinner, like Medvedev, like Tsitsipas, like Zverev, like Rude and Djokovic. By the way, another tall guy who has just benefited so much from these slow conditions, Alex Zverev, who just looks athletic again on these courts. And I know we'll talk about him in a second, but you're right. The slow conditions full circle here have probably most benefited Kasparut, who has just looked rushed for five months in this Mm -hmm. 2023 season until this past nine day stretch where he has more time where the forehands back, where he has time to pull the backhand down the line. If that's what he wants to do to play the slice, which is just a little bit more effective. By the way, if, if 2023 Roland Garros has a business card, it'd be like Roland Garros fitness forehands. And that's just what it would say. Or that's like, it's Geico commercial fitness and forehands. He has fitness. He has a forehand. I don't want to just copy you and and change picks, but your argument really did persuade me. I just want the listeners to know that your (laughs) argument did persuade me. And if I was a wuss, I would switch and go to Casper Rude. I'm not a wuss, so I'll stick with Holger. But your argument's, I think, the better argument. Okay. That's why we play the game. That's why we lace them up in the morning. That's why we we train hard uh, when we show up. Can I just say... What's, yeah. Can I ask you, what's the Holger win look like? The Holger win, I mean, I think he's going to serve and volley a lot to yes. uh, Rude's backhand. If Rude stands deep on return, Rune is coming in, and he's going to, I think, challenge that backhand return. I just think the backhand of Casper, of I think it's looked the best it has all year. I, um, I'd go the other way and just say, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. I caught you mid-breath. You That's go, what I'm you at go. my best. I think other side is the backhand is that Runa who recently in part of his quest to be more aggressive with his forehand, he runs around his backhand a lot just to hit it more frequently. He should not do that against Casper tomorrow. He should say, I, I just think the best version of Holger Runa says, Nope, I'm beating you and I'm beating you with my backhand today. And I think that's what it has to look like. I agree. It's gotta be kind of the backhand the backhands, there needs to be a pretty big delta in how their their yes. two-handers are performing. I think yes. that's fair to say. Uh, also, though, like I'm missing, I don't want to get too deep into this, but one thing no, I've been missing for, for Holger is like, where's the Instagram forehand? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you follow Holger on Instagram, the forehands he's hitting in practice are so massive. I don't know that he just, I, I don't feel he's bringing that to these matches recently. And... Again, if we're talking about sustained high RPM aggression on the forehand, it's just one of the keys here. I haven't really seen it enough from Runa. Uh, even in the final against Medvedev in Rome, I felt I felt it wasn't really there enough. So that's also a concern, is that I just think Casper can actually be more aggressive in this matchup from the baseline because he has the bigger baseline weapon. Runa's backhand is is a gem. But it's not the same as Casper's forehand. If we're going weapon a weapon here, it's not close. I think that's fair. I, again, you made the better argument. I'm sticking with Holger, though. All right. Uh, let's go lastly to Zverev versus Tomas Martin Echeverry. I want to start here. Would Tomas, Mar- would Tomas Martin be the most surprising semifinalist on the men's side since Karatsev? Chekinado, it'd be up there, right? Uh, yeah. Come on now. 
a cranial booster just because Djokovic no. hit someone in the throat and you're no. like, well, that was no. surprising. He had already um, been there. Yeah, Didn't, but you're like he already made yeah, one. Yeah, but he shouldn't have been. Yeah, but you're like this is surprising in the sense that this should not have happened. Um, right, but we've we've seen that plenty, right? Tommy Paul, nobody predicted him. I don't think. No, but it, what about like, like okay. Hyun Chung, Australian Open semis? Chung. That was Chung a little shocking. A good when he one. beat Djokovic. Um, but even that wasn't that shocking because he had just won the next gen finals the November before. So you're like, this right. guy's really good. Um, and then. He had a foot blister that, sadly, we haven't seen him recover from since. Um, most shocking. That's that's a good question. I mean, yeah, it feels like Trevisan or like uh, it just feels WTA-ish, right? Like a Trevisan or a Zidanezic is making a run. It shouldn't, though. Here's the difference. I, as I just think Echeverry A, a little bit younger, right? Doesn't turn 24 until the middle of July. So still 23 years old, early in his career. If you go look at the ATP rankings, he is a guy. Top 200 till he finishes a year. Top 150 till last year. He's in the top 100 and he's managed to gain a foothold there. Primarily through, let's be clear, clay court challenger success. You look for Tomas Martin Echeverry in his career. He's made 24 finals. 23 of them have been on clay. Uh, this is a guy whose career has been built on clay court success. And, you know, the thing that stands out to me, it's not the same. It's not exactly the same in terms of how they hit the ball, in terms of how the weapon is produced. But in terms of the game style of what they're trying to accomplish with their ground strokes, so many similarities in my mind between how Kasparud and Tomas Martinecheveri approach a match and what they're trying to do and where they're trying to hit from on the court and what they're at their best doing from those positions of the court. Now, again, I think the Echeverry backhand down the line has a little bit more sting, a little bit more drive than Kasparud. Obviously, Kasper's forehand's a little more effective. Kasper, a little more action on the rotation on his serve. But man, Echeverry has the fit. Again, he's got the business card. Fitness in forehand, if that's what you're looking for, Echeverry's going to give it to you. I mean, you could throw out the Nishioka match. Like, that's not what you're going to get. Go watch his Houston run. Go watch anything he's done over the course of the past two years. This guy's a nightmare to face on this surface. Yeah, he had a weird block with the tour-level second rounds. He lost his first five. And then I'm pretty sure, you know, he came through and uh, basically Golden Swing, he he cracked that code and he's been off and running ever since. He was a dark horse for me. So it's not, he was a guy who, if you, to your point, like if you have been watching carefully, he should have, have very much been on your radar as one of, if not the most dangerous unseated player in this quarter. Uh, for me, it was the winner of Draper. Echeverry is the dark horse, and yeah. Draper got hurt again, uh, which is kind of an interesting house of cards uh, kind of thing. Like, what if he was healthy there? Who knows? Okay, so that's the Echeverry side of things. Zverev, how close is he to where he was at exactly 12 months ago when he was coming into a Roland Garros quarterfinal as the underdog against Carlos Alcaraz, having never beaten a top 10 player at a major. He's not there. He's not at that point. He's not playing at that level. Where last year, just physically, I mean, again, it was a plane to where I had the thought, I'm not saying he would have done it, but I had the thought to where, wow, Zverev might be 
Rafa today in this semi. Like he is serving well enough and just physically he can dig himself out of that backhand corner enough times with his size and his strength that he's at least making this a fight versus Rafa. Like Rafa is going to have to step up his game because Virab has mucked that matchup and made it play on the sloppy, grindy, gross terms that Alex Virab loves to play at. The biggest compliment you can give Zverev at this French Open is that he's back to playing those gross, grimy, sloppy, three five or five three serving, thirty forty up. I double faulted the breakaway up five four. Oh no, I'm gonna break back and actually close out this set, but it was a little more dramatic than it needed to be. The slow conditions have helped him. Is he as fast as he was last year? No. Is he the clear step slower he was as early as two uh, as recently as a month ago? No. Like it's an, it, it's a happy medium. He's changing okay. directions comfortably. He's extending points once again. He's serving well, not as well as he was last year, but well, and he's able to generate plus one opportunities. The thing that's most important is how well he's hit from the ground strokes, like the forehand, the backhand, those things are back. He continues to every year get like a percent and a half better as a volleyer. And he started out his career at 36%. So he still has a way to go, but he has continued to progress as a volleyer. Again, I would say if you asked me to put a number on it, because duh, um, I'd say like 91.6% of the way back. Like it, like it is, it's a level tennis. It's not a plus. Haven't seen the a plus last yet, but he's back in the A's. I think that's fair. I was I, at the same time. Well, the Grigor match was disgusting, but that was well, just. Desperate. I mean, not in in the first set. The, the first set was the first. Honestly, the first time yeah. I saw him hitting his forehand, and I was thinking, "Whoa, it's it's uh, it's twenty twenty one forehand." Or the six one Tiafo set where it was just like, "Whoa, like hold on, like if if this is how Zverev's going to respond to dropping that first set, like I or uh, to two sets, one set all, whatever it was, it's like I actually got to take note of how well Zverev's playing because I agree, I think he's played two sets of the best tennis he's played in a year. Well, some of us don't have Peacock, <laughs> so some it's of us suits. Didn't see that. I really like Suits. Great show. <laughs> uh do you trust him mentally? Do you trust the consistency? Because when when Sinner, <laughs> this is obviously in the Sinner Medvedev quarter, both of them lose, and a lot of a lot of the sentiment is like, oh, okay, Zverev, like pencil in Zverev to the semifinals, and it's to his credit that he's here in this position as the heavy favorite to get there. But I was like, should we do that? Like he's taken some losses that are kind of unexpected. In fairness, there have also been a lot of tournaments where he hasn't taken that unexpected loss. And it's been against a high seed earlier than he would want because he's not as high a seed as he's used to being. And it's two losses to Medvedev. Three, if you take the whole year into account, it's a loss to Alcaraz. And like, maybe it's going to take that again. And Tomas Martin Echeverry really has no no shot at all in this quarterfinal. I, I would subscribe to that. Yeah, like, well, I, I think he's in a good enough place where I do feel pretty confident about him winning this matchup. But it comes down to like, wow, like he really still hasn't shown what's his best one of the year. <laughs> Tiafo? Mm, probably. I mean, I, or 
the first, can I say the first set against Dimitrov? That's his best singular win of the year because that was lights out tennis. That was last year sort of stuff. Agreed. I mean, look, you bring up a good point. And I think the biggest compliment you can make to uh, get offer Alex Zverev in his comeback from injuries that we're back to being like, yeah, but is he mentally tough enough to get the job? Because ultimately, <laughs> that's what it always comes down to. And that is perennially the question. And I will say, Echeverry's not going to fold. Like, Echeverry will not roll over. He will have to play better tennis from start to finish in his quarterfinal match than he did today against Dimitrov. Like, it got sloppy at times. Dimitrov mm-hmm. missed so many center forehands and so many forehand returns. And Echeverry, at a minimum, is just going to put those balls in play. He's also going to punish some sitting backhands. Like, Zverev was able to pick on the Dimitrov backhand. You won't be able to do that against Carlos Ech- uh, Carlos against Thomas Echeverry, who will be much more aggressive also in finding forehands from that position. And just, again, hitting a dynamic inside-in ball, into the heavy ball into that Zverev forehand. Matchup-wise, here's the thing. Again, much like Casper Ruud, Echeverry wants to be dictating from the outside of the court. He wants to be going inside out, inside out, inside in. Hard to do. Like, Alex Zverev at his best, and why he's sometimes a decent matchup for Rafa, is he's one of four guys in the universe who has a backhand to take anyone's inside-out forehand away or any ad-side forehand away, even if it's from a lefty. Uh, Is he serving well enough, though, and will he be, you know, again, is the gumption check there to where he can put that sort of pressure on Echeverry? Because if he plays a tentative match, Echeverry will beat him. Like, Echeverry's standard level of tennis on clay, and I hope I emphasize that enough when discussing him, is good enough. He's a top 25. He's one of the 25 best clay court players in the world. Like, it's an easy argument to make. Go look at the track record. I wonder, again, is Vera... Does Zverev has the gumption, and is he firing well enough with his serve, with his first backhand or first forehand, whatever it may be, to actually put a pressure on a guy in Echeverry who will force you to do exactly that? I think the answer is yes, but this is a match. This is the first match. I mean, Runa Root, I guess, I, I think is going to go at least four sets. But this is the one, if you ask me, Alex, of all the four quarterfinals, which one are you most certain isn't going to end in straight sets? This would be the one I'd turn to. Interesting. I I love that call. Uh, patterns wise, I I'm interested in the forehand of forehand. Yeah. I think when you have a weapon, when you're as confident in using your forehand as a weapon as Echeverry is, and you're playing Zverev, Zverev does not take his forehand down the line very well. So you can sit on that cross court forehand and try to punish it. Just say like, especially if you bring pace into the deuce corner of Zverev. He's probably not hurting you down the line. When he is, that's, and that's what I saw in the first set against Dimitrov, that's where it's like, oh, you're not going to beat Zverev today. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) When the inside out is working, and there are times when he generates really good depth on that ball to set things back at neutral. But when he is stepping into his down the line forehand, yeah, it's just like, all right, I lose. Like, I'm not, this 6 6 behemoth is firing on all cylinders. First serve percentage has been really high for Zverev also. Yeah. I think that's been a big positive. I think that even in these conditions, uh, I think that's a pretty big deal. Honestly, another part of this, like if we're just, again, if we're, I'm, I'm always trying to be completely transparent. I don't have a good feel of how Thomas, Tomas Martin Echeverry plays against this kind of level of opponent yet. It's one thing 
it's one thing when you're producing consistent results on clay, uh, 250s, even throughout this run, where I think we should mention, by the way, Echeverry has not lost a set. And some of this is about my schedule, the fact that I didn't see him beat Chorich uh, in straight sets. That's a, that's a good win. Somewhat similar uh, style to Zverev, by the way. Backhand, backhand is strong. Forehand is a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, very, you know, kind of a guy who's going to back his legs and trust his defense. So uh, the, the serve's not really close, but... I'm telling you the match, if you want to go watch something in the lead-up to this, go watch the Houston final. Because I watched Tiafo Echeverry, and I came off of that. And I've watched a lot of Echeverry. I watched, I watched a little bit of that. Yeah, and but... I just that was the one I came off being like, this guy's good. Like, he is just good. And I don't think there's a discernible weakness for Zverev to attack. And that's the thing that Zverev does really well, is he's just physically a nightmare to face. And if you have a weakness, he has some sort of weapon at his disposal to attack it. That's not the case here for Echeverry. Like, this is a gut check match for Zverev. Where it's like, all right, dude, if you're back, go win this match. Because there's not anything Echeverry does dramatically exceptionally to beat you. Like, if you're firing on them full cylinders, you should win this. But I still have a little doubt. I guess that would be my two cents. Yeah, I, I think I, I have a little bit of doubt because I don't trust Zverev this year yet. Yeah. I just don't. And Echeverry's good. It really is the match that I have I have the worst feel of. I, it feels yeah. unpredictable coming in. I don't really know how it's going to look. But I guess my question is, Zverev mentally, for my... I've felt for a long time where everyone's like, Zverev's definitely going to win a major. I'm like, wait, his tennis is good enough to win a major, but is he going to do it when it's time to do it? And I'm just wondering if you think there's any chance that because Zverev has really been removed from the contender category in, you know, since the injury and struggling throughout the year, is he actually in a better position to make something happen right here, right now? And, just kind of shock everybody. That's exactly the point. And the answer to that question is yes. After this round, like it, it this is the, la this is the most difficult match mentally left for Alex Zverev because rude Runa. I guarantee you Zverev will be in the press being like, well, I'm the underdog. Look at what they've done the past couple of, that was a bad Zverev impression, but it's just like, look at what they've done the past couple of months versus me. I've been out with injury. And so, yeah, they should be the favorite. And it's very easy to make that case that he should be the underdog against Rude and Runa, given what the track records look like for each of them over the past six months. You can't say that in this Echeverry match because it's a first quarter final for the 23-year-old Echeverry. It's not the first quarterfinal for Alex Virev. He absolutely is the favorite in this quarterfinal match. That's the, that's that's why I think both of us, as we approach this, are like, yeah, but, and again, this we're not talking about the tennis, which I think these slow conditions, he's the one guy who you slow things down post-injury. He has that extra half second, plus hitting a tennis ball through a court, regardless of the conditions, has never been a problem for Alex Virev. We're back to the same question is, Okay, but can he do it mentally? Like, did you watch the opening parts of that second set when he went down 4-1 to Grigor? It was typical, double fault, loose forehand, same errors we always get from Alex Zverev when things start to go astray. That Zverev still very clearly exists, and Echeverry, mm -hmm. again, is good enough to exploit that guy. That's why this match is in maybe you could argue, despite Elkares, Tsitsipas, pay-per-view, 
Hatchinov with how good he's been against Djokovic, pay-per-view. Rude versus Runa, quietly a top five ATP rivalry pay-per-view. And yet, I might be most excited for this match. Because, like, if we didn't disagree on Rude, Runa, and I guess we forced a disagreement, I was going to come out here and give you a spicy Echeverian four take. Because, like, I just see the world where it's like, nope, didn't work. Echeverian four. Like, sorry. <laughs> like, it's just another, it's one of those rounds. Like, that uh, that scenario is so present on the mind of all of us. I'll take Zverev in four. Okay, you know, I'll I'll I agree with you. I'll do five. I'm going yeah. five. Zverev Zverev in five. We disagree on Runa Rude, and that's it. Tell us what you have going in uh, CRHQ in the great state of Indiana, yeah, Michigan. That's where- yeah, it's Indiana, Indiana Michigan. Michigan. It's both. Yeah, it depends on the week. Um, well, it's compensation week here at Crack Rackets. And what I mean by that is I'm compensating for our lack of Rome's always an event we're going to miss because it's in the midst of the NCAA tournament. But could have done more than we did during French Open week one. And obviously only four majors on the year. We're going to step things up here in week two. I'm going to do another quarterfinal men's preview as well. We'll have a women's quarterfinal preview. If you're interested in that, you can find them on the mini break podcast feed on our website, Crack Rackets. We'll have daily recaps. Since we shared shaving texts earlier, I also texted Gil, hey, let's do a home and home. You want to come on the mini break? And he goes, ah, I'll come on later in the week. So I'll hold them to that. Uh, and hopefully we'll have you on the show. Honestly, I need you for the Djokovic Alcaraz preview. So just like pencil that in your calendar now because you're our Djokovic whisperer, um, which we're both predicting. So hopefully that does happen. If it doesn't happen, Sviantek Sabalenka preview. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Either way, always a pleasure to join you here. And break point, second half coming out soon. I'm excited to get back behind the mic routinely with you, my friend. Me too. Me too. Good call. Thoughts on the trailer? Quick, quick thoughts on trailer two? Uh, I don't remember seeing it, uh, but we will catch up on that soon. For the record, right answer, because I haven't watched it yet either. (laughs) (laughs) Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah, I like it. I like it. You'd think if you have four podcasts, you figure that out. But Well, you know what? I was betting that was going to be your answer. All right. Thanks, Krosky. Always a pleasure. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallin' drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallin' wherever you get your podcasts.